I'm Al Filreis, and this is Palm Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Once again, Zach Cardner, Poem Talk's amazing engineer and editor, and I have gone on the road back to Boston, to Cambridge to be precise, back to the wonderful Woodbury Poetry Room at Harvard where we are joined by Kate Colby, whose most recent book, I Mean, from Ugly Duckling Press, was featured in episode 109 of Poem Talk, whose seventh book of poetry, The Arrangements, is coming out in 2018 from Four Way Books, who has received awards from the Poetry Society of America and the Rhode Island State Council for the Arts, and was just awarded the 2017-18 Creative Fellowship at Harvard's Woodbury Poetry Room, this very room, and who lives with her family in the sometimes unprovidential city of Providence. Do you live right in Providence? Right. And is it right un- next to Brown? Is it unprovidential? I don't know what um, unprovidential means. No, it's it's highly providential. All right, cool. <laughs> in my and by Christina Davis, who is the author of an ethic and. Fourth, A Raven, and the forthcoming collection, Mankindness, and who is the curator of this very Woodbury Poetry Room, where she oversees their book, and I guess we call it AV Collection, audio-visual, audio-famously, as well as their popular series of public programs and curricular close-listening seminars, and who I'm proud to say is a graduate of the writing program at the University of Pennsylvania. I bet you guys didn't know that. No. It's a, it's no. a secret. Big so, news. And has visited the writer's house in Philadelphia a number of times. And by Matt Fay and Kelovich, whose books include Some Worlds for Dr. Vogt, Alpha Donut, and Boris by the Sea, and whose translations from Russian include Today I Wrote Nothing, the selected writings of Daniel Carms, and with Eugene Ustashevsky, Alexander Videnski's An Invitation for Me to Think, published by NYRB. Poets, which received a National Translation Award, who is the founding editor of Ugly Duckling Press and who teaches at Columbia University School of the Arts and the Milton Avery Graduate School of the Arts at Bard College. Thank you so much, Christina, for hosting us here at WPR once again. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. And Matt Vey for making the trip north from New York. And Kate, you also went on the road for this. Yes, thank my pleasure. For, thank you for making the trip. Well, we're here today to talk about a poem by Anne Lauterbach called Under the Sign. It's the title poem in a book called Under the Sign, and it appears as the third to last piece in a section, the first section of that book called Glyph. Under the Sign was published by Penguin in 2013, and so here now is Anne Lauterbach performing Under the Sign. Under the Sign. Having dreamed of my dead sister raging with urgent need, she conducting us through intolerable passages, now forgotten, I have burned my right hand after sunset, small dark clouds above the river I cannot see, while listening to a scratched CD of a Haydn piano sonata so that certain passages rapidly repeat, 
and having spent some moments thinking of the vision that accommodates all that is unforeseen as the world now becomes without sequence. Can we um, figure out just the logic of that first section, the first part of what is essentially one long sentence? I believe, am I right, that the if boiled down the sentence, Christina would start, I have burned. That's there. There's the subject and predicate. Mm-hmm. So how do we deal with the stuff that comes before it? I guess I felt that each thing she was establishing in those first few moments was that we know she's awake. <laughs> we know she had a living sister because there's a dead sister. Right. We know she had a working hand, and now it's burnt. Um, so in all of that, she's sort of establishing... Um, I don't know how to say, but the totality of a sign in a way that you can have a dream, but to say dream means includes the waking from it. You can have a sister and that sister can be dead or living, but that the word sister holds all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You can have a hand, that hand can work or not not work. Um, That's what interested me because I, I think you can't be reading that first line about a dream without also knowing that it is under the sign. Kate, Matt, Searching any for that. further thoughts about the opening? Um, my first thought about it was whose is the urgent need? Um, Seems like it it's the, the sister, right, in the, the dream? The sister. But then she, she kind of tells us with the comma, she, mm. raging with urgent need, whose urgent need? She. Um, but yeah. the intolerable, mm-hmm. right? I was wondering the intolerable passages might be these, and the hand burning might be the actual writing. So of let's consider the, the three definitions of passages, since it's a word that's used twice. One is a catacomb-like dream where she, a dead sister, a ghost, is leading me somewhere. You know, gothic. Um, second, as you just mentioned, the leading me through this poem, leading me through the passages that are written by my right hand. And the poem itself is sort of a narrow passage. Third is a musical reference later that we get to Haydn. So it's a passage of music. And death, the The sister's passage might be... crossing Mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's great. I mean, great in the sense that we like our poems this complicated. I've even got another definition of passage. What's the fourth one, yeah? The act or process of moving through under, over, or past something, mm. which I thought was interesting for the poem in terms of how the prepositions are working. and the prepositions Right, because we're under not the working. sign, we're <laughs> burdened by the sign, mm, so yeah. it could be passage from the sign. Mm-hmm. Navi, can you get us started on talking about the complexity of the shift, the tense shifting? I mean, you almost don't know where you yeah. are or when. I, yeah, I think it's... Um it's that shift, but to my mind, the even more interesting, I really like uh, this turn to after sunset, having burned my right hand after sunset. I mean, it could be that the that action is happening after sunset, or is this really, because she doesn't stop there. There's no full stop or no semicolon. So you would assume that after sunset has something to do with small dark clouds um, above the river. Which she cannot see, which, she which cannot suggests see. that she's home. But, but I, what I guess I was going to decide. She knows that she has perceived it before. Um, she knows it's there. The river I cannot see. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. she knows the river's there, but looking over it into the to the dark clouds. But that shift, uh, it's also strange to say I burned my right hand after sunset. 
It's in just some such way. a strange location, <laughs> right? We have so that. You know, in this poem, Anne Lauterbach is doing all kinds of, I would say, brilliant things to make it difficult for us to ignore cause and effect or ignore sequence. But the poem ends by taking us beyond sequence. So let's just look at so that. So we have the burning of the hand after sunset, the clouds above a river I can't see while listening to a piano sonata on a CD, a scratch CD, so that. So is it the scratchedness? Is it the riverishness of the sonata? Is it the combination of the burning, which is bad, and the music, which is good? That leads us to the repetition of passages. Kate, can you help us with the, the way that this... Well, so I was just, um, every, there's so many possibilities at every turn and yeah. it's really foregrounded by the couplets and her line breaks. Um, but I just now was thinking that the burned hand evokes the CD, the way you inscribe on a CD by burning it. Um, another burning. And in which case the, so that might harken back mm. to the burned hand and the certain passages rapidly repeating is then kind of inscribed in her body and the present moment of her writing the poem. Um, I really love the way having dreamed sets up a phrasal preface that delays the main action, I have burned my right hand, and then later, and having spent. So you almost have a, almost a Stevensian snowman um, and having been in the snow so long, you, in order to make one sentence out of the snowman, he uses strategies, and one is to repeat these really arcane tenses. And it almost it resets this poem for me. I think it's skipping, you know. It's, it's skipping like skip back so that that having spent is also is coming back to the before I have burned my right hand. So somehow, the think, not only the dream of the dead sister, but the thinking of the vision that accommodates all that is unforeseen is also previous to or, or is the moment of the, the accident, the sort of accidental, right, the, the stumbling. And that's I don't know supported what to make by of that the exactly. sequencelessness. Yeah, so the sequence is messed up within the poem. It's like... Right, up. because, yeah. I mean, in some ways, the to go back to your initial question, the having dreamed, is that the recent past? Has you just awoken? Uh, has the dead sister just died? Or is that a more distant past than the having dreamt of it? And have you, how recently have you burnt the hand within this? And these moments that you have, and then having spent some moments, that's a temporal signifier. But in fact, it tells us nothing about um, when that transpired. Um, so there's so many different um, dimensions of the past being activated here. It's, it, it sort of expresses the pure provisionality of all events because mm -hmm. they're always dependent mm -hmm. or have, you know, triggered by a previous event. But here we can't tell what came before why, what right. happens when in time. What is the so establishing clause? Yeah. Purely relative and provisional. The fundamental pun or multiple meaning of passages comes back into play. You think about writing now diff with difficulty with a burned right hand. Now, of course, we're going to get messed up when we find out that Anne is a left-hander. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, she <laughs> so conducts her poems with her hands. But yeah. just we're all imagining, I think, the urgent 
needs of the dead sister reappearing to cause the poem, to cause the passage into being, is marred by the simultaneity of burning the right hand, which is supposed to make the passage. So you get this, uh, the collapse of the possibility of seeing with a passage you've written, so you can't see the river, and you have to accommodate that which is, and I first read it as unseen, but it's unforeseen, so I'm going to appeal to you to help me figure that out, but the now that we hear twice, now forgotten, the intolerable passages at the beginning escorted through, now forgotten, so now situates us in some kind of weird present, and at the end, the world now becomes without sequence. But I want to try to understand the vision that accommodates all that is unforeseen. Can someone help me with unforeseen? Christina, you look like oh, you can help me. Heck. Um, I felt that that was the one moment of possible futurity in a, in a poem that's, in a sense, always the now. I mean, the vanishing now, the present tense. Um, it felt like, for some reason, because of its alliance with the word accommodate, which is above it, um, because I think also in this poem, you're always having to look at what's above because it's under the sign. So it's it, almost these couplets are uh, um, paired in a way that you are always looking at a line above it. Um, so I was looking at this word un accommodate and I feel like accommodation is actually a very central term in this. In some ways, when, when we accommodate something, we uh, try to um, make accidents um, ally with what we... <laughs> Oh, interesting. Um, with teachings, we, we um, for me, the sign itself um, is capable of containing, the word river is capable of containing the unseen river and the seen river and the future river, mm. the unforeseeable river, that, that each word in this is a sign that, um, that accommodates all of its states. I don't know how, to, I'm not perhaps expressing So you're that, taking you know I mean? sign in under the sign as... A linguistic or a, a visual, a verbal or a visual signification. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I maybe. I know. I think we else, should do that. Um, Matt Vey? Yeah. I, I, the idea. Sorry. The idea <laughs> of under the sign for me was right away uh, a pun for Anne about under the sign of the sign. You know, it's like mm -hmm. uh, swayed by, under the influence of, um, predetermined by in some way, right, uh, by a sign. But at the same time, to me, it seems like to be about the, the, the way the, the sign works and doesn't work, right, mm -hmm. and the way writing works and doesn't work. I mean, in... The, the when the world becomes without sequence at the end of this poem it's it's that the writing has allowed that to happen right right to some degree i think and and i was you know revisiting like an older book of hers there's that wonderful title also title poem of the collection or to begin again right the title poem is this great sequence of like 15 16 poems that all start with or to begin again and they all end with the end <laughs> it's like and then it's like or to be so it's this constant also skipping scratch cd, scratch CD mm -hmm. looping um odd kind of narrative strategies as well and and so i think she in a way distills that sort of without referring to that form at all here she's doing something similar Kate, there's actually a skipping. Um, I just realized the scratch CD passages rapidly repeat. That does suggest a, a scratch. That suggests so a kind of hiccuping. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's rapid. Oh. It's not like a record player where you hear the whole phrase, the whole musical phrase comes around again. It's like that sort of really weird... Um, the blippy, blippy, blippy skippy. Yeah, and this poem is not blippy skippy. It's a, it's lovely lyric, despite the shortness of the couplets, the brevity of the couplets. It just flows, and you know, you you're drawn. You don't know what's coming ahead. Another version of un- unforeseen. You have no idea where the thing's going to go. But it has that. I think I think of some of the short lyrics of the early short lyrics of John Ashbery doing the same thing. You know, how did he, how did he, take us to some place we didn't expect to be, and yet have it feel like a beautiful lyric, like we've heard many times, beautiful music. Kate, I was going to ask you a question, but I went up making an assertion. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I, I'll just say a thing then. Okay, um, great. I was just thinking about the word vision. This was the part of the poem that I really had a tricky time with. Um, thinking of the vision that accommodates all that is unforeseen. But it it's reading to me right now vision as way of seeing, really, and way of seeing time as purely relative in this um sort of time without an arrow because the way she toggles back and forth between tenses and, you know, verbs that have two subjects and two possible objects, by the end, it everything becomes, again, purely relative. Um, and so that vision that accommodates all that is unforeseen accommodates all temporality simultaneously. Mm. Mm. Sorry, that was a lot of big words. No, uh, <laughs> I had read this great line, which for me also held this, to dream is to proliferate in the opening that is always shut. That's Anne speaking. That's Anne. Yeah, say it again. Uh, To dream is to proliferate, harder word than you thought to say, in the opening that is always shut. Um, So in terms of the passages being proliferated, essentially sort of, for me, I was thinking in terms of the sign that... Well, it's like a um, network of causality right. here. That, that in some ways you're end. opening definition itself. Like we think of definition as being finished or shut. And she's opening the very definition of the sign or of seeing or of passages or of... Does it have much to do or a lot to do with the seeming mourning, the loss that's recalled through a dream at the beginning. The reason I ask that is that I think our job, typically our profession, is to do some amount of overthinking, especially a title poem that uses the word sign. So obviously we need to think about signification and linguistics. But I think a lot of people listening to this poem, maybe people listening to it in a performance, would immediately think she burned her hand after dreaming of her dead sister who has a need. There's something emotionally memorable about this event. And then everything gets um, poetically and psychologically thrown a kilter because of this, damn, I burned my hand, my sister is raging. You know, can can we, is it okay if we go back to that? Yeah, I was thinking about, um, you asked me at the opening question about having dreamed and that construction of a verb with having, there's a lot of, having in this poem um but in fact the lack of possession and there's a line by 
uh, Lauterbach, I think in this book that says an experience is what I possess and, and that she does not possess the object of it that she, so I was thinking in terms of what you're saying about the, the not having, um, and the having that what she has is that residual emotional, um, experience. What she does not have is the sister. I have burned my right hand after sunset, small, dark clouds above the river I cannot see, while listening to a scratched CD of a Haydn piano sonata so that certain passages rapidly repeat. Can we go around, I think we've said something about the title, but I think it's worth going back and just putting some points on it. So each of us take a turn and say, offer one thing that under the sign means, does. It is the title poem of the book, so it's obviously something that Anne Lauterbach intended for us to think deeply about. Maybe that's a sign of its relation to writing itself. So who wants to go first? Just say briefly again what under... Kate, under um, the sign. Well, I can't really speak to the astrological significance of it because I don't know anything about that, but, but, that's, but I that's know it's thing. in there. Well, can I, I mean, I read it, it as under the... In, yeah. When someone says under the sign of Saturn, that means what? So. Well, under the influence of Saturn, which is how I read this title, under the influence of the of. sign, mm. or and or burdened by the sign, as in under the weather... Or under the gun. There's also under the sun, mm. which Everything is under sort the of sun. my first uh, so that's the sound pun on illusion. the idiom, under the sun, under the sign. Good. Christina, add one. I was thinking of, uh, again, the interview you sent us was with Camille Guthrie, um, the word jurisdiction. She says something like, we should allow ourselves, allow ourselves to live under the jurisdiction of this state of being for a while. Uh, and this state of being that she was describing was something that fluctuates between opacity and clarity. And that the idea of a poem being uh, a total clarity all the way through, the idea of life being totally clear all the way through, is a deceit. And in fact, we should live under the jurisdiction of this uh, law that contains both uh, opacity and clarity. And so I was thinking, under the sign. And sign also, I'm sure this has been covered, but um, sign as um, premonition, a sign. Oh, yeah, the, unfor the, unforeseen. The, the foreseen or the unforeseen. We're going to figure this poem out. We are. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm really glad we improvised it. Can I? Can I? I want to go a couple of more rounds. One round is: Can we talk briefly, each of us, about why? Why would this be a poem you'd introduce to someone who? Oh well, I don't read that difficult poetry. I like my you know, Ogden Nash or something like that. Sorry, there's a, there's a straw man. Um, why would you recommend this to someone who needs, needs to experience what, what you consider to be a poem you admire? Well, I liked what Matt Vey said. I don't, these aren't your words, but about how she, she sets out elements, like sort of what you said, characters, sort of narrative elements. And then she makes four or five or seven connections between mm -hmm. each of them. You know, it looks like a buckyball or something. Um, and I think that's really... <laughs> a what, What's a, a buckyball? It's like the buckyball? The Is Buckminster that a Providence Fuller oh, 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 oh. yeah. geodesic oh, yeah, thing? Yeah. Oh. I never knew it was Buckminster called a buckyball. Yeah, don't ask me to say any more about it. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning it has many dimensions and angles and shapes. Right, so she, you know, it's, it's un, for someone who is not 
doesn't spend a lot of time with poetry. I think that's very clear here and a nice way to sort of enter into how a poem might be constructed. It sort of shows its underpinnings. Mafe, what would you say? The question really is more, how is this poem operating in a way that's interesting, admirable, smart, worth recommending? Uh, first of all, I, I'm so happy to learn about the colloquial name for the geodesic dome oh that I, ma- I imagine people well, we threw that around my, in the uh, 60s and 70s. We're like, oh, yes, <laughs> it just they built another bucky bucky ball on that property. It's a molecular structure. You know, those hippies or whatever. You know, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, but but also made me think of how uh, Richard Foreman talks about uh, making theater. Uh, and making this particular kind of very, which, you know, in some ways has some bearing on um, Anne's approaches uh, to these two moments, uh, to revisiting moments, to deconstructing and reconstructing those moments in different ways, is that he, I think he talks about facets, uh, of, of to make something so clear that you can see the facets. Um, and yet, the facets are so complicated that <laughs> within the this crystal quality, there is also a kind of uh, interruption and uh, in Foreman case, Foreman's case, a kind of mystery. Uh, but um, Facets is a great term and concept mm. for this poem. That's really great. When you look at, just thinking about facets, that uh, this blimp on the cover, um, oh, yeah. which is so faceted um, and so witnessed, um, so collectively witnessed this, this event, um, mm-hmm. this passage and this and the being of a, and the being a passenger, I guess. Um. All right. Well, we could talk about this poem. It, we didn't know we could, but it turns out we can talk about this forever. So, what I think we should do is just go around and say one more thing, one thought you had, one note that you didn't get a chance to say because it wasn't, as it were, in sequence. Christina, one more thought. I did have a thought, um, and maybe it ties into what what you had asked us, um, which is um, the idea of the imperfect or the fragment in a way. And in another interview, she says that we often associate something broken with something negative, um, but that, um, and, or as a sign of imperfection, but for her, it is a sign that it's already had a life, that it has already had use and utility and existence. And so I think for me, as I began to look at this poem and, and to look at language itself um, as that which is already, is sort of evidence of life. And so what began as a sad, passage um, for me ended up being, especially when you get to the end, um, this, this evidence of life, of a totality that contains all of this. Kate, final thought? I just keep staring at that becomes the mm. third to last word in the poem, as the world now becomes without sequence, and just r- reading it continually and wondering if it's a, an active becoming or a passive becoming or when when the becoming is happening and when That's the true. now is happening. You don't think of becoming as without. I mean, you think of becoming as with. Or, and or is the now as. these days or is it as a result of having written this poem? It just, her, her messing with temporality just comes, you know, to a head at the end there. Becoming unbecoming, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe to, to further what I was going to say is that I, if I were recommending this poem, it would also be because 
of her disobedience of the schools of poetry. I mean, this poem is both deeply postmodern and also um, at once also Victorian, I mean, in terms of like Emerson, and also modernist. Um, so I mean, it's like she somehow bridges all of those schools that we've separated. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the uh, poem that, that uh, appears after this one in the book, uh, Alice in October, is a remnant from a long um, a long poem in the book Matveit talked about. It's from Or to or Begin, Begin Again. Again. Yeah. And that poem is Alice in the Wasteland. And so you think about this edge of the end of Victorianism in Alice, which is Victorianism, realism gone awry, and then Eliot, the Wasteland. And here you have Anne going back to the convergence of those two and kind of fabulously messing with that. And even the gerunds in this are so evocative of Burial of the Dead. I mean, uh, I mean There's all something of this really Eliotic. Having, conducting, yeah. listening, uh, the, the, like mixing, mm-hmm. stirring, breathing. Yeah. I think she uh, quotes that in the Alice in the Wasteland. Does she? She quotes the thing about the mixing the roots, the what's the... Yeah, right yeah. at the beginning. Oh, yeah, she yeah. does. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you're right, though, about the gerunds. I think I, the, I, think I heard Anne say something... Oh. At some point, about like there's too many gerunds. Maybe she's like keeping them to herself. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> the, the opening lines of Alice in the Wasteland, which is in the book preceding the one under the sign, Alice was beginning to get tired sitting with spring rain on the bank in forgetful snow. She thought it is too dark to see anything. I mean, under the sign is not a rewriting of that, but you still you the. The concerns and preoccupations are there, and so I'm really. It's triggered by your reference to the, you know, to her ability to work in many modes, phases, periods. Really, right? So, and we were all intimidated by Haydn. I mean, the the reference to Haydn, the, even the reference to Haydn. Yeah, Matt, mm-hmm. my final thought. There's another poem called "Nothing to Say," where she writes, "Meanwhile, I will think a little in the middle." Mm. And I kind of love that. It's, yeah. it's in a sentence, but it's so you don't see the rhyme too, but it's sort of like nursery rhyme-ish. I will think a little Which in the middle. Which is a little like Alice. Uh, but there's something in, in the way she puts herself into the middle in this poem, into that, in, into this moment uh, that is constantly not future, not past. And that's what keeps this thing very alive. And the dream is present. Um, death is present this lived um, quality is present. The things that have a, accumulated a life, they're present and their life is present. And even in those scratches, they're like more present, like you were saying, I think, that the things are more present for having been, having had a life and having been used and aren't quite working and that kind of thing. But that is, to me, about this kind of middle um, sp- mm. space in, that she's thinking from without letting herself be final <laughs> like we're trying to be final here, you know. You know. <laughs> well, my final thought follows from what you just said, or part of what you just said about this, her interest in these middle spaces. To me, I'm always amazed at art in whatever medium that tries to describe or capture or represent something that's impossible to represent. So the first photographs are of people, but after after a while, when the artists got hold of the cameras, they started to take pictures of fog or of things, indefinable things. Um, Someone writing a poem about an aurora borealis, I mean, what do you, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? This poem does these difficult things, 
Dream, Scudding Clouds, a piano sonata, which I think of as also one of those things that's moving along a river, a, a dark river because it's after sunset, so a dark river, right? Passages, uh, accommodated vision, and that life de- liminality of life, death, waking, dreaming. I mean, she's in this short poem. She's put us in a, this transitional situation where description is impossible, where order sequence is impossible, and I, it's just amazing. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to. Dickinsonian hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world, oh. and you're all looking at each other. The poetry so, world? Oh, it does it have to be in the poetry No, it doesn't have to be poetry. It could be film. we're talking about paradise. I mean, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> paradise not be. is not just poetry. Okay. <laughs> all right. Kate, I think you have one. Do you? I do. Um, I would like to send everyone to the Maud Olson Library, which is now housed at the Gloucester Writer Center in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And it contains every book Olson owned, read, or referred to, complete with transcribed marginalia. Referred to? Mm -hmm. Somebody's on some collective. The Olson scholar Ralph Maud lovingly and ardently collected all of these things. And... He died a couple years ago and left it to the Gloucester Writer Center, and it's now housed in a beautiful space mm, overlooking nice. Gloucester Harbor. And Olson's writing desk is there. You um, should do an Olson poem talk up there in that library. Absolutely. Would you With Kate to do that? We have yes. done an Olson poem talk, but we'll do another one. I would love that. But you can sit at his desk and write and, and look at his to book. This I am. I'm yeah. on the advisory board. I was one of the founding board members. So Fantastic. Great. Christina, are you ready to gather some paradise? I sure am. And speaking of paradise, um, the, fir- the trees. <laughs> um, I wanted to recommend um, a book by Peter Volleben. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate. Um, but essentially, reading it and now rereading it has just been uh, a life-altering experience. It basically not only suggests, but gives evidence of uh, the fact that trees have a language, have um, uh, feelings, and perhaps most shockingly, may well have a memory uh, and a language. And you are a walker, hiker. I am. Tell us about a hike you've done recently that you recommend. I know you go to Walden once in a while, don't you? I do, I do. You Um, swim at Walden. I swim at Walden. Um, uh, I guess Walden is for me sort of like uh, Lauderbach's poem. I feel like I've had every preposition there. I have been within it. I have ice skated over it. I have been around it. Um, it it's really, um, for me, it's kind of a, a multi-positional. Doesn't Thoreau take a sounding? How, how deep is Walden Pond? Am I wrong that there's a section called sounding? hundred and something feet. That's really um, deep. Yes, he did it's do glacial. soundings. Oh, it's glacial, yes. Yeah. yes, yes. And it's his bicentennial this year, so... I'll Great. Be I'm glad we got a thorough gathering mm-hmm. paradise in there. Um, I don't know. I've been reading um, uh, Ralph Ellison's essays, oh. which I'd never read before, uh, which are really striking um, and fantastic, and I think very productive to read now in certain ways. Um, Why would you say that? Uh, just to, like it was interesting to read him after having reread like a ton of Baldwin essays. Uh, and then to think about the debates going on around uh, black literature at that time, um, uh, 
and a post Richard Wright and like all this kind of anyway. So so there was just a lot of interesting ways that people approached identity uh, or that uh, Ellison speaks to identity and uh, individuality and creativity. I think that's really great stuff. And but as far as trees, then you made me think of this uh, kind of um, one of like perhaps a very early eco-activist and eco, maybe one of the early eco-poets, this Slovenian poet, Jure Detela, who, who basically died, I think, because he didn't want to hurt anything because uh, he stopped going outside. He was afraid he'd step on an ant and he didn't want to eat anything that was of life. He got a little extreme, but <laughs> but he did a lot of eco activist like um, uh, and, uh, stuff in in Slovenia in the seventies and eighties and protests, one person protests and things. And his poetry is amazing. I've just been re been helping to edit a manuscript of his poems in translation into English, which we're bringing out in a year or so, or half a year, um, and just yeah. And there's a couple of the translations appearing in various magazines now. So Maybe some people will see the name Yure Detela. Spell the last name. D-E-T-E-L-A. Great suggestion. My gathering paradise is Matvey Yankelevich, his pen sound page. I just went back what? to it. To look. You have a what? really good pen sound page. Oh, really? It was created in 2009. Did you not know that you have a pen sound page? I didn't know, but okay. I haven't. I didn't know there it was. There are nine readings any, now on there. Any nine readings. Anything else. <laughs> the earliest. What's that? I just didn't think it was. I just thought, okay. I, I it's didn't know paradise. what it is. It is? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Wow. It's totally paradise. I'll go um, there. I, I spent, I didn't prepare. I spent I'm the morning not paradise not prepare, for me. Though. I spent the morning not preparing our poem. But uh, listening to you, uh, nine readings, the earliest dates to 2004, three interviews on Leonard Schwartz's cross-cultural poetics, three. Wow. I'm sure you've been on the show I four. I was only down there once. No, it was, it's <laughs> usually on the phone. by phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and three video recordings. So nice I I that's recommend a, that's an archive. That everybody go there. <laughs> Why are you being so modest? I know, He's uh, always modest. I'm, I, I don't know. I haven't been to my pen sound page in a while. Well, <laughs> I guess we've been adding things without your knowing. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, that's all the vision that accommodates the unforeseen we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. O-R-G. Thanks so much to my guests, Kate Colby, Christina Davis. <laughs> You're making me laugh, Christina. And Matt Faye Yankelevich. I'm really glad you could, you could all come. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, who came all the way from Philly to be with us. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And thanks again to Zach, again, again, for making the trip. This is Al Filrys, and I hope you'll join us soon for another episode of Poem Talk. This is Al Filrys, Poem Talk's producer and host. Zach and I and the rest of the Poem Talk team here at the Kelly Writers House hope you enjoyed this new episode. We wanted to add a special word of thanks here at the end to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, whose generous grant supporting Poem Talk, among other outreach projects, has helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much to the Lights, and thanks to our regular and intermittent listeners, one and all. We'll see you again in a month with another new episode of Poem Talk.